welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 65th episode, I'll be talking to Juliana Finch, singer and songwriter and owner of a very successful Kickstarter, about musical influencers and Lilith Fair. Along the way, we discuss weird corgis in pug costumes, how Tom Cruise and the Beach Boys can teach you geography, and how we contain multitudes, but still don't have a hairbrush. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail, and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. What makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name is Juliana Finch. I'm a singer, songwriter, and performer, and I identify as a Hufflepuff. I think that's a great thing to be. I'm very proud to be a Hufflepuff. Preach. Me too. And I am all over Twitter and more recently Instagram. Never got the hang of Snapchat, but I have a love-hate relationship with social media, and I'll sort of be on it in spurts, yelling about things on the internet with great regularity. And you've currently got an album that's coming out? I do. We're going to be recording an album later this winter, probably recording at the end of January and hoping to have it out in March. And it's my first full length album in a couple of years. My last one came out in 2014. I'm really excited about it. It's it's some songs that I haven't played a bunch live yet. I've played them for my Patreon followers and some folks have gotten a little sneak peek here and there, but it's mostly brand new songs. Cool. You've also got something that I'm kind of interested in from a personal standpoint. So tell me about hashtag bedhead. (laughs) This is a thing that bedhead became my brand kind of accidentally. I use the word brand quite tongue in cheek uh, (laughs) because I'm not a strategist in any way as far as marketing and branding goes. But a few years ago, I just had cut my hair really short after a few years of having it longer. It's always been short my whole life, but I'd had it sort of chin to shoulder length and then I cut it short again and I noticed in the morning that my hair would do really funny and interesting things. So I started posting pictures of myself from the eyebrows up every morning just to document it. Jokingly, I said for science, you know, I wanted to see what it did every morning. (laughs) That was seven years ago, I think. And I've been doing it not every day, but pretty regularly. Now it's probably about once a week. It just grew into this thing that other people started connecting with and identifying with and people would tag me in their bedhead photos. And so now every morning I wake up and there's at least one tag or tweet or something where people are saying, hey, Juliana, look at my crazy hair. And I love it. It makes me really happy. (laughs) So that just expanded into I make videos on YouTube first thing in the morning where I sing and play a song as soon as I get up and I don't fix my hair and I don't put any makeup on, don't warm up my voice, which you can tell in some of them. But (laughs) it just became this way for me to connect with people on a level that was more vulnerable and more real and to kind of show my sillier side. My, you know, my personality tends to be kind of silly, even though my music can be serious and emotional. And yes, I contain multitudes, but I don't have a hairbrush. (laughs) Well, the reason that got my attention is I too suffer from the bedhead in ways that a lot of my friends don't really believe on the regular, (laughs) because I tend to have 
like I normally use pomade and kind of slick my hair back. I've done that for about four years, and for a long time, I would never go outside with my hair natural, pretty much until I met my current girlfriend, who encouraged me to care less about it, mainly because she was just like, okay, you, you can actually go outside. It's okay. It's allowed. I promise. No one will die. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to first off pop a normal one through. This is how I look when I have done my hair. So I'm going to pop this into the chat. Got it. So that's normal hair. And then there is Bedhead Lucas, who looks, I'll say significantly different, but I'll let you judge. That is amazing. Wow. You should be so proud. (laughs) And it's one of those things where I literally keep some of these photos around. I'm sending through a couple more because it is always different and forever changing. We need to post a photo of ours side by side. We totally will. Together to promo this episode. We'll make it a visual companion. But yeah, it's just one of those things where I keep it as evidence because people don't believe me. They say, oh no, you can't have, like your hair can't be that curly. And I went, well, hey, funny story. I got through a lot of product to tame this thing. Yep. I had to go through several hairstyles that did not suit me in order to find out that, okay, this one kind of does and I can maintain it on the wrist. Oh, I like that one. The one that's just popped up has a nice like tail in the back. That's good. (laughs) And yeah, the very last one is from this morning. So it's fantastic. So this is you right now because it's morning for you, right? This is what you're, yeah, yeah. the very last one was sort of the red in the background is right now. That's fantastic. (laughs) I love it. What I've learned is that it's also good except for the minute you've got hair and you have a baby in front of you, that becomes a target and a baby doesn't realize that when it grabs and sort of twists in a 180 degrees, hair is not supposed to do that. Yeah, that it's attached to something. (laughs) Which is another reason why I went and got my beard cut very short I was about to ask if your beard was a problem with the newborn too. Oh, it wasn't until recently, until Mm -hmm. literally a week ago when he decided that right where sort of my chin meets my neck was a great place to like put his fist, grab a handful of beard and just sort of twist in a full 360 motion. Sure, because that's a nice sensitive area. And I'll be walking him around hoping to go to sleep and my partner will just hear, ah, she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, he won't let go. It's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I've gotten oddly protective of my bedhead integrity. Like one of the things Mm -hmm. for me is when it's really silly, it's very important to me that people know that I don't style it. Like a couple of people have like suggested that maybe I'm styling the hair for the pictures and I get so offended. And then I'm like, why am I so offended by this? (laughs) But yes, I'm very committed. I'm very committed to it being authentic bedhead. Because that's the thing. It's like there's such a thing as the just woke up look, which I have always hated. Because going back to my teenage years when someone would be like, oh, I just put a tiny bit of product through my hair, run my hands through it, and let it air dry, and it just comes this way. And I'm just like, I hate you. I hate you. I will punch you in the face. Damn it, Steve. (laughs) Damn it, Steve. There is like a picture of sort of mid-90s Superboy where he would have the undercut that was super curly with ringlets where he would kind of push over to the side. And one of my friends told me, you should do that. And I'm like, it does it already. It just doesn't stay that way. And I'm not going outside looking like that. They're like woke up like this stuff on social media actually one of the reasons the bedhead music series on youtube started was because i would see these people posting videos that are like i'm just hanging out at my house doing a video last minute and it's very clearly like anyone who's ever seen any professional editing studio it's very clearly like they have fill lights it's a studio there's pro audio recording like nobody is just doing that (laughs) on their laptop so i was like no what is it if you actually just like turn on your webcam and like Mm -hmm. play your guitar in front of it what does that look like I mean, it's a dangerous word in the world of the internet, but gee whiz, that actually sounds like authenticity. Mm, mm, weird. Yeah, go figure. All right, well, let's start with the basics, Juliana. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Actually, from there, I think there's only seven of us. Most people <laughs> are transplants there. And then I moved to North Carolina for college. 
went back to Atlanta for about a decade and just last year moved back to Durham, North Carolina. But I'm an Atlanta baby. I also have a dual citizenship with Italy because my mother is from so had kind of a southern and two countries upraising. Oh wow. And I feel like I know Durham, North Carolina a little bit better now because former guest of the show and other guests of the show, Aiden Sullivan, Chris Sims lived there. And North Carolina was one of those places where I like okay, you know, having grown up in Canada and come to Australia, a good chunk of the US I have no mental picture for. So I feel like I know that a little better because they live in Durham, North Carolina. Although because it was based around what I could send them as a wedding gift, I know there's a bunch of laser tag places there and that's about it. Oh my gosh, I don't know that yet because I'm still newbie. So I'll have to go check it out. That's good to know. I'll have to send you a link. Yeah. Apparently there is a sort of Playland-y type amusement park where they do like bumper cars and laser tag and things. So I'll have to send you a link. Uh, Yes, I will go there as soon as I get home. (laughs) I sort of did it as a lark, and I'm looking around. I'm like, what can I send them that I can buy from Australia that's allowed? Then found laser tag and sent it to Aiden. And Aiden's like, you do realize that a solid chunk of our courtship was based around laser tag. I'm like, no, I didn't, but I'm going to pretend that I did. I love gifting people experiences instead of stuff because, you know, people can pick their own stuff out. You know, they know what they like. And experiences are something that... I never feel bad spending money on because you're going to create memories for somebody or for yourself and stuff's awesome. I love gifts like that. Yeah, and it's something around, like even when the getting of stuff can be an experience, like for example, I have a really bad habit of when I'm on vacation or overseas, I tend to buy things that I could theoretically get at home. Like I am a terrible person for collecting coffee mugs when I'm overseas because I will just find one at a random store. Like I'm looking at a navy blue coffee mug with sort of a bronzish kind of glaze at the top that I bought at a crate and barrel at the Grove in LA <laughs> because we were there. So not like a tourist coffee mug, like... Oh no, not even that. Hello from LA. Just like, I like this mug and I'm going to buy this and I'm going to secrete it in my luggage and hope it doesn't shatter like the pickle Christmas ornament that I also bought at the Grove in LA shattered on the way home. Now I look at this and I go, that's my LA mug. And it doesn't have to say I love LA or whatever else on it, you know, Randy Newman style. Instead, it's just like, that's my thing. And I know that that White Stripes record that I have, I bought that in Byron Bay at a tiny little record store. So that's like my beach record store White Stripes record. So it's like kind of souvenir-y, but it's also, it's experiential for me at least. Right, because you are associating it with the time and place that you got the thing. What I really need to know is, did you replace the pickle Christmas ornament? We did, actually. It's funny because we were only in LA for a couple of days before we went to Mexico for my sister's wedding because she and her wife did it at a resort down there. And so we had like a day and a half in LA on either side. And so we went around and did a bunch of stuff and I got myself a cloth octopus with a Santa hat or the Christmas-topus as it was known. (laughs) And it has a pride of place on our Christmas tree. And my girlfriend chose a giant dill pickle with a Santa hat, but it was done in that sort of, not glass, but kind of that very thin material. Mm -hmm. And it shattered. And so the next time we were in the US, we did a big whirlwind tour of St. Louis and Boston and Chicago and New York. And we were in Boston and we were at one of the markets in Boston and they had a whole rack of Christmas ornaments. And I'm like, you need to look if there's a pickle. And of course there was. So we got two of them just in case. There's a tradition, right? I can't remember what culture it is, but there's a tradition where you're supposed to like put the pickle somewhere and like somebody is supposed to find it. Like I did not know about this. Find the pickle sounds really dirty. Like that sounds really terrible, but it's actually (laughs) a very innocent game. Like maybe German tradition or something where where one of the ornaments is a pickle and you're supposed to find it. I know I'm not making this up. Maybe I'm having like a childhood hallucination where only I remember it. But Christmas pickle, you should look it up because maybe you guys incorporate that into your holiday traditions. 
Here we go. For some people in the United States, a, de a decoration is hidden on a Christmas tree with the finder receiving good fortune. It says here there are a number of different origins, including one in Germany. So you were pretty much oh, good. on the nose there. I was worried. You know how you remember stuff from your childhood sometimes, and then the rest of your family's like, that never happened. <laughs> you know, you have a very strong visceral memory, and you're like, no, this is a thing that happened. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like, everyone did this. And it's like, I, I don't know what you mean. Like you made up that show. It's like the Mandela effect, but just for your childhood. There you go. It's the Weihnachtsgurk, which is the Christmas pickle. Christmas pickle, yeah. Right. Although it was imported to the U.S. by Woolworths in 1890. So there you go. Commercial basis for our traditions. <laughs> I just watched the the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade yesterday, so... There you, you know. go. So it's one of those things where it's like... I was just listening to War Rocket Ajax yesterday, and Kill McDonald was on, and she writes a book about werewolves, which is very good. <gasps> oh my god. I'm sorry. I really love werewolves, so I'm just having to write this oh, down so that I can Yes, please do. I haven't read her books yet. And she was talking about, like... She went on a panel on a comic convention and talked about some of the traditions, and what she discovered in her research is that using a silver bullet on a werewolf literally came because one of the makers of the movies was a big fan of the Lone Ranger and thought that was really cool. And so the idea of silver hurting you know, undead things is an old one, but the idea of silver bullet for a werewolf came because he's like, I'm a Lone Ranger fan. Wouldn't it be cool if we made it where silver bullets kill werewolves? Wow. And it is cool. It is, but it's so much more recent than expected. And apparently the sunlight killing vampires thing came because they ran out of money on the set of Nosferatu. And they're like, we can't have a fight, so we're just going to have him go into the sunlight and die. Good. Saves you a lot of budget there. Just like walk out into the sunrise. So there you go. Between Woolworths Christmas pickles and Lone Ranger bullets killing werewolves, if anyone tells you that their tradition is ancient, you can tell them to stuff it. <laughs> Like with most <laughs> things we think of as tradition now, probably not that old, especially in America. <laughs> done once is a celebration, done twice is a tradition, mm -hmm. done three times is like an old charter or something. I was happy to find out that a lot of original werewolves, or I say original, you know, the older werewolf stories, sort of the folklore around mm -hmm. werewolves, most of the wolves were she-wolves. Oh, yes. So the werewolves used to be women who were shapeshifters instead of like big burly guys like we think of it now so i'm glad that some of the contemporary media is getting back to like lady werewolves i'm down with it yeah my friend maria lewis wrote a book called who's afraid which is getting a sequel that's called who's afraid 2 t-o-o because teen wolf and i was very happy to hear that and yeah she talked a lot about that and how i was basically like yeah you know it's okay to write a lady main character and have her be a werewolf and have it not be oh you know here is this prettier version of the male werewolf it's like no you can be this big slavering monster and rip people apart and still be you know femme it's allowed yes love it i'm gonna have to go look up that book too you're giving me a really good reading list yeah. oh don't worry I'll, i'm happy to send you through a whole list and listeners i'll put a few in the show notes as well because I'm, I'm trying to think i can think of at least three or four current werewolf books that i could probably recommend there's also moonlighters which is more of a funnier kind of take, which I like. Katie Schenkel writes a book called Moonlighters, which is basically a team of werewolves that help other werewolves and also do odd jobs. And it's really funny and cute. <laughs> That's Now that all makes sense, the title, Moonlighters. It's exactly. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. And yes. And these are all by women, which also means that I can read it. Hey, go figure. Before the end of the year, because I'm doing this media project where I'm mostly reading and taking in media by women this year. So it's been really exciting. So I can add these in. That is an excellent project. My friend Ginger did something a few years back called The Ladyist Experiment, where they went through and just tried to restrict their media to purely things made by or starring women and found a whole bunch of great stuff. And I was always following their blog and being like, just writing stuff down all the time. So I think that's a really worthwhile thing to do. Also, just before we get off the subject of Moon Lighters. There is a weird corgi in Moonlighters, so just uh, heads up on that. I'm a fan of all weird creatures. Like every creature should have a weird component. I think. 
except for, and listeners to the show will remember this, there should never be a weird orca. Never, <laughs> never, never. <laughs> it's a long story. I don't need to go into it again. I'll have to go listen to that episode. I want to hear arguments pro and con. I was talking about Teen Wolf with Kit Walker on her return episode, and we got into weird orcas, and I brought up the Transformers Beast Wars character of Torka, which was half, half oh. elephant and half orca, and it's just, it's horrifying. It's it's not great. <laughs> Those are not two great tastes that taste great together. Also, the front of Torka's chest is entirely tongue with teeth around it, so think about tasting everyone you've ever hugged. Oh my god. <laughs> it's just bad. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the weird corgi probably tastes everyone he hugs too, but it's probably but more, like more pleasant. Way. Yeah. <laughs> because corgis are ridiculous. They're so cute. They look like they're put together wrong. They're basically the dog equivalent of that kid thud butt from Hook who can roll into a ball. <laughs> I have a pug, so I can't really make fun of other people's <gasps> pets. But um, Okay, okay, stop the podcast. Tell me about your pug. His name is Pavlov, <gasps> and he is fantastic. I Is he named Pavlov because he salivates before you feed him? He's named Pavlov because he has me trained to feed oh, him. Oh, that's better. That's clever. Because he's the doctor. He's about 10 years old now, and I was not like most pug owners who tend to, and I apologize, pug owners, if I'm generalizing you, but in my experience, pug owners love to put their pugs in clothes and costumes and little outfits and stuff. And I just never did that. And then this past year, just before we started this Kickstarter campaign for my album, I was like, I want to put a little outfit on him. And it was one of the most fun things that's ever happened. And now now he's just <laughs> looking at me like, Mom, seriously, stop. Because I'm buying every possible dog costume I can find to put him in. Yeah, I was never a dog costume person until I met my current partner because she has a half Jack Russell, half Dachshund. And he has multiple looks and mm-hmm. outfits, including a little surf lifesaver outfit with a little like bathing cap and several Christmas outfits and shortly after we met a full dragon costume but the problem is because he has short little legs the majority of the costumes don't properly fit him so (laughs) the dragon outfit like the head hangs over his eyes and he we have to flip it back like a hoodie that's so cute little wings stick out so yes I am 100% pro animal costumes though I've yet to fit one on my cats yeah he's a great little dude we're gonna be making a holiday video together oh that's right that was one of your stretch goals right yes and I will freely admit that it was just because I wanted to have an excuse to put him in another costume. Yeah, I'm looking for matching elf costumes for us, for it. Excellent. And then I also have already purchased him a gingerbread man costume. Oh, wow. (laughs) See, Junior's costume this year is sort of like a vest, and on the back of the vest is a little Santa that appears that he's riding Junior like a horse. Oh my god, that's great. And we had to really look to find one that would fit it because of the way he's built. He's surprisingly broad in the chest. But if you get him a medium, it will trail after him. Like, you know, the cartoon little kid whose 40 pajamas are too long. What you need is a good like canine that. tailor. Yeah, Kimiko's mom has stepped in a few times and adjusted a few things. So like, I've had to let it out some and then take it in a whole mm-hmm. bunch. <laughs> yeah, Pavlov's hard to fit too and, and other pug owners will... Well, no, their chests and neck are huge, and then the rest of them is small, so... Well, they're basically a tube, right? They're, they're more like a beer barrel, <laughs> a little, little barrel-chested with thing with legs. <laughs> so has Pavlov gotten to the age where he is the snuffling pug now? He does snuffle. He's mostly in good health. He doesn't have a lot of the problems that pugs have, but he used to sleep in my room with me, and then when I started dating my now husband, he was not allowed to sleep in the room anymore because Mike is a very light sleeper, and... Pavlov snores louder than any person and I think it's you know I can sleep right through it because it's like comforting to me because he's been my buddy and he was like no he can't he can't sleep in here so that was a a milestone of our relationship I was like okay but just know that 
I'm going to feel sad about this for a little while. I, I would not have now. even been able to suggest that for Junior because Junior does something that we refer to as birdieing, which is where he settles down by having a cloth put over him. <laughs> so what he will do, because he is short in height and long in length, he will like sit on the foot of the bed until we're asleep, then walk up the outside of the bed over my pillow, usually stepping on my hair and pulling my hair. Mm, yeah. And then get his nose under the edge of the blanket and then burrow like a weasel directly down in between us. That's adorable. Like get his back up against my girlfriend his feet up against me and then just push until there is a space <laughs> that's fantastic whenever i'm home alone with the animals pavlov gets to sleep with me and it's very exciting <laughs> it's like he knows now when the bags are getting packed and loaded he's like oh yes i get to sleep in the big kid's bed tonight he's rolling on his back being like remember mom remember when it was just us just us wasn't that great <laughs> Dogs rule. He's the best. And his favorite treats are ice cubes. So that's good. Oh, it, helps, no it helps him stay in good shape. He doesn't eat fattening stuff. He doesn't even really know how to eat people food. So I'm surprised <laughs> he can eat ice cubes, but he loves them. Excellent. All right. I suppose we should get the podcast theoretically back on track. <laughs> this isn't pugfancy.com. <laughs> oh, it could be. In like in like a heartbeat, it could be. All right. But growing up in, in North Carolina, what sort of kid were you? I talked all the time, regardless <laughs> of whether anyone was listening. I, I was a very imaginative kid. I didn't know yet, you know, that I was on the introverted side of things, but I very much lived in my imagination. I, if I would get in trouble with my parents and they would send me to my room, I was like, thanks, that's where the books are. You know, I had no problem just like <laughs> staying in my room and reading and writing. And I have journals going back to when I was like seven or eight years old. But yeah, I did a lot of like little theatrical things and making up plays with my friends and making up songs and singing them at my parents until they told me to stop. <laughs> but only unsolicited. You know, there would be times where my parents would be having friends over and they'd say, oh, Julie, come sing this song that you made up the other day. And I'd just clam up and like run away to my room. <laughs> there are lots of home videos of the back of my head as I run into another room. My art is not for you, mother. <laughs> I am not your dancing monkey. Like, I just resented being, like, told to art on demand. I always think back to there's that bit on Tiny Toon Adventures where they're telling Babs, just do that thing you do. And because she's a performer, she runs through, like, 50 things. And at the end, she's like, I, I don't know what you mean. This is ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. What do you want from me? <laughs> so I was a very dramatic little kid, but also just on my terms. I didn't necessarily want to have an audience. I just liked exploring different voices and impressions and making up songs and stuff like that. Okay. So what sort of things were getting your attention then? Like you mentioned you were you know, a voracious reader. What sort of things were on your nightstand? Oh, I loved any book about like a magical kid or witches. I remember one of my favorite picture books was this book called The Witch Who Was Afraid of Witches. Okay. And it was an adorable little book about a little girl who is from a whole family of witches but her older sisters are like the mean kind of witch and she's a good one it was about how she like escapes and finds a little kid who's dressed like a ghost it's a human kid but the kids dress like a ghost and they become best friends it's like halloween or something and i guess the little ghost kid doesn't realize she's actually a real witch but it's you know all about acceptance it's a very hufflepuff book <laughs> I had this book of Greek myths, Dulaire's book of Greek myths that was illustrated that I would read over and over and over again. It had really beautiful watercolors in it. And so from an early age, I really liked folklore and mythology and the big stories and all of the books that were based on them. I loved like fairy tale retellings growing up, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. 
And on your list of topics, you mentioned an author that I'm actually not familiar with. So tell me about Charles DeLint. Charles DeLint does urban fantasy, and I read a lot of his books starting in early high school in the 90s. He writes essentially like the world of mostly Celtic mythology and then North American. He's a Canadian author. He's from Ottawa. So a lot of like native mythology mixed with Celtic mythology and a lot of music. The premise is that there is a city and it's a totally urban environment in our modern times, but that all of these like fairies and magical creatures exist alongside human beings, either covertly or overtly, and that there's this magical sort of undercurrent in your regular life. And I think I liked that idea that anybody might be somebody magical underneath and you just can't see it. That's cool. And did he set his uh, stories in Canada or were they sort of all over the place? They were kind of all over the place. A lot of his short stories are in this fictional town called Newford, which feels very much like a northeastern, northern Massachusetts or a Maine or that kind of town. So he has a fictional city that is sort of a mix of northeastern continent type of feeling, somewhat Canadian. And then some of them do take place in Ottawa. I was going to say, the reason I ask is I went to university in Ottawa and I always have a great kind of swell of feeling whenever I read the equivalent of a musician going, oh, hey, it's great to be here in Ottawa. I went to this place today. Reading that in book form always felt a little more special than when a musician would shout it out. Yeah. I remember, God, there was a, when I was a kid, Marvel Comics did a thing where they did an anti-drug Spider-Man comic. They did it where it could be modified for a number of different places. And I was in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And so they modified it to be like, oh, you know, there's Spider-Man trying to swing around downtown of Fredericton and realizing there's no buildings over like two stories. Mm -hmm. So he had a real trouble doing that. (laughs) That's adorable. But that sort of magic as a kid of being like, I walked past there on the way to school. Spider-Man was just here. Exactly. Yeah. So hearing that, oh, it was set in Ottawa, even though I know, okay, well, you know, it's a setting. It could be literally anywhere. This idea of being like, oh, you know, I wonder if he goes past the Byward Market. Well, the the first book of his that I read is called Moonheart. It is set in Ottawa, and so there's a fictional house that's sort of a gathering place for misfits of all kinds Mm. called Tamsin House, and it takes up an entire city block in Ottawa. Nice. So yeah, you should check that out if you want some Ottawa shout-outs. I don't know how accurate they are, but I enjoyed it as a southern kid. (laughs) Well, that's always the worry, right? Because I know that, for example, I love the Dresden Files books because they're basically candy. I've been told by my friend Molly Jane Kramer, who lives in Chicago, that a whole bunch of that stuff is wrong in relation to how the city is laid out. But I'm like... I don't care. You know, that I can go to the Field Museum and see Sue the T-Rex, and I know that in the climax of one of the books, Sue is brought back to life as a zombie T-Rex and is ridden by the main character into the climax of the book, and that's the fucking coolest. Yeah, and then you get to go see it. It's great. Exactly, and and it's like that doesn't even take into account the one-man polka band that was also on the back of that zombie T-Rex, which is a sentence I just said. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, a certain amount of suspension of disbelief has to come into play. I certainly have to Mm -hmm. do that, and a lot of the film industry is in Atlanta lately, and so a couple of films are supposed to take place in Atlanta and it's hard to be like, oh, they can't get to that place from that place on that road. You know, <laughs> just got to let it go at some point and enjoy the story. I talked to former guest of the show, Andrew Isla, about North Dakota and how he has to continually tell people that, no, there are no mountains in North Dakota. I'm sorry, everyone. You know, I'm sorry, Logan, this otherwise excellent film, <laughs> get to North Dakota and you're running down like gullies and mountains. And he's like, no, it's, it's really flat. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is something I always asked whenever I have musicians on the show. I tend to kind of falls into two camps. But when you were a kid growing up, what sort of music was getting your attention? And did you feel that that led into the music that you eventually began to play on your own? So this is interesting because I would say that the music I listened to as a kid was 
very influential on me in a lot of ways, but it's not what I sound like. So I listened to a lot of world music growing up because my dad got really into those collections that were coming out in the 90s of like different world music. There was a label that was just putting out collection after collection, you know, Zydeco, Celtic, West African, and he had all of these things. And I would listen to all of that stuff. I really loved old country music. I loved Dolly Parton. Hell yeah. Patsy Cline. I loved Ray Charles. I still love Ray Charles. So yeah, that's the kind of stuff I was rocking out to. I did also, the first CD I had was Janet Jackson's Control. That was the first album that I had. That is a strong pedigree. Yeah. I stole it from my brother, my older brother. (laughs) And the first one I bought with my own money was the soundtrack to The Little Mermaid. Again, very strong. Sort of all over the place there, but those were strong influences. I also stole the cassette soundtrack to Cocktail from my brother. (laughs) Another formative one in the Brown household because that was... It's a good soundtrack. Really inappropriately... It was my like eight-year-old sister's favorite movie, <laughs> and like not just because it takes place almost entirely in bars, but because of all all the boning down that happens in that mm-hmm. movie. But yeah, the soundtrack got a lot of play to the point where both the weird cover of Rayvon and the weird cover of All Shook Up, mm-hmm. none of us really tied those covers to you know the Buddy Holly and Elvis music that my dad would play in the car. Yeah, and I, you look, it also taught me geography because I knew all the words to Kokomo. <laughs> Because of the cocktail soundtrack. So Aruba, Jamaica, like they just named all these places. It really helped me. It helped educate me as a child. A lot of the stuff we watched as a kid, I think, looking back, was probably highly inappropriate for our (laughs) age group. My favorite movie as a little girl was, well, I had two favorite movies, but Dirty Dancing was one of them. Sure. And I know that, you know, going back now, I mean, I know at the time I didn't really register all of the adult themed stuff. Like I knew like some grown up stuff was happening, but I don't, you know, I didn't have a concept of like, oh, this girl's trying to get a back alley abortion because it's illegal, you know? And like all of this stuff that I watched it recently, I watched it a couple of weeks ago and I was like, God, this movie is so good. Like it's still so good. And it was so progressive and interesting. And, but as a kid, I was just like, no, I want to do the lift. Like I used to make my brother, I would run off of his bed and I would make him like catch me in the air to do the big famous dirty dancing lift. And please tell me that went well and no one got a concussion. I mean, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we were all fine. No injuries. Oh, good. I was going to say, I could just imagine it's like either, you know, you get the momentum wrong and you just go straight over them. Straight into the wall. Exactly. <laughs> I did once leap directly over his head, not during a Dirty Dancing recreation, but during this quote-unquote game he used to play with me, which was a reason for my older brother to like playfully beat me up. This game called Cross the Line, and all he would do, oh my god, if he listens to this, he's going to die laughing. He would take <laughs> one of those like stretchy exercise bands. I don't okay. know what they're called. I think they're called exercise bands. They're literally called stretchy exercise bands. Yeah, yeah. that's a technical term. He would stretch it across a room... And and hold it down under some furniture and he would stand in front of it and I would be on the opposite side of the room and he would be like oh God. try to cross oh the God. line oh God. <laughs> the only rule of the game was that I tried to cross the line and he would just knock me down he would let me get like almost all the way there and just knock me onto the ground look he loves me very much we're fine now as adults but there was one day where we'd been playing this game I don't know how long in child minutes it was probably you know 16 hours it was probably actually 20 minutes <laughs> 
I was just so exhausted and furious and like I really wanted to make it happen. I don't know what happened to me. I became possessed and I ran at him and he was kind of crouched over and I leapt over the top of his head and crashed into his desk behind us. Uh oh. <laughs> and I, you know, got a little dizzy, a little discombobulated. And I remember looking up and he's like standing over me going, Oh my God, are you okay? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I just like blearily look up at him and I go, Did I cross the line? <laughs> It's like, yes, you win. You won forever. Yes. And on that day, several lines were crossed. <laughs> yes. He's like, thank God I did not accidentally kill my little sister. As one who was banned from things happening on a trampoline because practicing wrestling moves on my eight-year-old sister on a trampoline caused her to have one of her own knees hit herself in the mouth and knock her baby front teeth down her throat. Oh, God. After that, it was deemed no more power bombs on the trampoline. Mm-hmm. So I cannot judge in any way. It's amazing any of us survive childhood, I think. <laughs> I did several years later bite him while I had braces. So I feel like, you know, it all evened out. It wasn't like I wasn't holding the grudge until then. It was an completely unrelated incident. But uh, I feel like our injuries of each other evened out. Maybe it's just the way I'm picturing it. But I'm picturing you as like latching onto his arm and him shaking you and trying to shake you off. It was probably not dissimilar to that. Oh, kids at home, please don't bite your siblings. <laughs> don't bite your siblings. It's it's not nice. And then they have to go to the orthodontist and get their brackets replaced, and that's expensive for your parents. <laughs> I have gotten lots of good mileage out of that quote from Lemony Snicket about how the youngest Sonny Baudelaire enjoyed biting things, and I've attached that as a caption to many pictures of my baby. <laughs> yes, babies do enjoy biting things. Because, yeah, there are many pictures of him where my girlfriend or me will just be holding him, and he'll just lean over, kind of get a hold of your hand, and then just chump, and then eyeball you. <laughs> like, Man. how do you like that? <laughs> I got you. It's adorable. I love other people's children. Yeah, they're fantastic that way. Because then you can <laughs> hand them back. Yeah. <laughs> so in the list of stuff that you'd put down, there's a couple of musical ones that I wanted to touch on. Because here's the thing. Whenever I think about, because I was born in 82, so... I was a teenager around a lot. Oh, there you go. Hey, bless. So like I was a teenager around a lot of influential music, but because of where I grew up and the friends that I had, I didn't get a lot of that influential music. So for example, when Spotify did that thing where it took your birthday and it's like, here's what you would have been listening to as a teenager. And I was like, ha, I wish I had never <laughs> even heard of the Pixies when I was a teenager. In your list of music, you've actually got like a lot of really cool bands on here. So you've got, for example, Amy Mann and Ben Folds and the whole of Lilith Fair. So were you just like a ridiculously switched on teenager or what happened there? I have to give all credit to that, to an incredible Atlanta radio station called 99X. And 99X was my radio station growing up. And I think... 99X was the alternative rock station. It started when I was probably in sixth grade. I listened to it all the way through high school. They eventually went away. They just did a reunion show where I listened to the live stream online where the morning show hosts from that radio station got back together and did another like an anniversary reunion thing. And it was super cool. But they played, you know, the thing about radio in the 90s was really interesting because we had this genre called alternative, right? And alternative, (laughs) if you go back and look at the breadth of bands that they played under this like blanket of alternative, it's 20 different genres compared to now you know now (laughs) you can listen to a radio station and it's like the same 10 songs that sound like each other over and over again and you have to turn to a different radio station to hear something else and 99x was just this thing that like they would play and they also played a lot of local artists they had a radio show called locals only they had an acoustic thing on sunday mornings they did an incredible variety of music and they're not around in the same capacity anymore the hosts have gone on to do other things but that definitely educated me as a kid and also just like what are my friends listening to 
to and let me check that out. And, you know, there were a lot of really cool music festivals. Lilith Fair was the first big festival that I ever went to and it was incredible. Oh, wow. You, how old were you? I want to say I was 16 or 17. Wow. I'm not sure when the, I don't think it was the first Lilith Fair. I think it was the second one. I would have to double check that. Were you on your own or did you have a bunch of friends with you or? I went with some friends and just seeing all of these women on stage at the same time when it was really hard for a female fronted band or musician to even get on the bill at a festival. I mean, that's why Lilith Fair existed is it was really hard for women to get on the bill of a big music festival. So yeah, Lilith Fair existed to give women, you know, a place on the stage. And I was used to seeing like, maybe there's one female musician anywhere in the whole bill. And it's not usually a front person. And so to have spent a whole day, you know, out at this park where every band is almost all women, you know, there's the occasional guy playing bass or playing drums, (laughs) but all the front people are women and all the songwriters are women. It was a really powerful and formative experience for me to say like, oh, I can use my voice and I can get on stage and do this thing. I don't have to be in somebody else's band. That's fantastic. It's now a cliche. But it's like there are some bands that you go out and you listen to and you have a good time. And there are other bands and or other situations where you go out and you listen to them and you come back and your brain is just fizzing and you want to plan stuff. And this sounds like one of those for you. Yeah. And it, just because it was also different genres, too. Like they were, you know, it wasn't just I mean, I know Sarah McLaughlin was the one who organized it, but it wasn't all just like pretty acoustic. You know, you had Paula Cole just rocking out on the piano up there. You know, <laughs> there was just some incredible, incredible musicianship going on. And then also probably really formative for me was Ani DeFranco, mm-hmm. which I didn't discover until maybe a little later than some of my peers. I think I was a senior in high school. She really taught me that being a female musician, you didn't have to just sing things that were pretty. And I think, you know, a lot of the acoustic lady with guitar thing was very pretty and sweet and melodic and she was just fierce and yelling and angry about stuff and happy about stuff but like not that her voice isn't great but she wasn't trying to be pretty that was another thing that I was like wow I could just say I could just say whatever I want like people can have this kind of raw energy and just express themselves and not have to be pleasant yeah and the thing is someone like Paula Cole I mean a lot of people will think okay oh she's the one that did where have all the cowboys gone and like that's it but Paula Cole has a lot of great tracks the first time someone put on feel in love uh-huh. at a party once and i just kind of stopped what i was doing and listened i'm like this is good like who is this again yeah put, no that's not yeah. oh wow and yeah. live the quality of her voice live is just unbelievable i mean almost anybody can be made to sound good in the studio you know in an edited capacity where you have a bunch of shots at it but you have one shot when it's live you know and, it, and she just sounded so amazing and her voice just soars she's incredible I was going to say small tangent. I know exactly that feeling that you mean where it's like every once in a while you'll see a moment where it's like, oh yeah, this person's actually really talented. And this is a long bow to draw and I apologize. But I got free tickets to see Michael Buble because mm-hmm. my girlfriend worked for Fremantle TV. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I'll go along. It's a Thursday night, whatever. And like had my hipster cred like right up there on my shoulder being sure. like, oh no, no big deal. And it was a fun show and he was having a good time and he introduced his band members with like the way they do hockey players on <laughs> Hockey Night in Canada with like the spinning bust and like a hockey card on it. And that was cute. cute. And then at the end, he put his microphone down 
and just sung out naturally to this massive arena. Wow. And every one of us could hear him. That's amazing. Like the last kind of refrain of the last song, he just put it down, turned off the mic and just sung. And I remember having that moment where I was like, oh, okay. Oh, wow. And like, you're right. Having that moment in a live setting where it's like, okay, this is a thing that is happening that can only happen right here. And it is happening for real. And there is nothing affecting it. It's, it's very powerful. Yeah, it's really special. And now I will take it away from Michael Bublé and put it back to Lilith Fair. So please continue. <laughs> I mean, I think that's just where I was getting was just this like the experience of live performance is powerful and not just music as entertainment which moments like the one that you were just talking about do also. I think, you know, performance is not just about, you know, hey, look at me. Well, maybe for some people, I'm sure it is, and that's totally fine too. But for me, there's a creating a moment of connection with the audience and we're really having a conversation with each other and, and sharing an experience together. And that can be really special and it's special on both sides. It's not just special for the audience member. You know, you can be on stage and really feel, you know, that people are giving up all of their, you know, they might come in having a terrible day when they come in the door and they just sort of let go of that stuff to be with you. And it's pretty powerful on the other side too. Yeah, that's fantastic. For those who haven't heard your music, did you want to talk a little bit about it? Oh, okay. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Have I just done the thing where I'm like, right, now describe yourself. (laughs) Oh, I just, again, you know, we talked at the beginning about me running away from home videos. I have to be sort of, you know, tricked into talking about myself sometimes. And I'm trying to get better at that. Yeah, you know, I write, I tell people that I make people cry on purpose. (laughs) Hashtag sad on purpose. (laughs) Something that we've used. Hashtag all the feels. I love to make people cry in a good way. And for me, it's just about, you know, it's mostly lyric driven. I tend to take topics that break my own heart and, and try to write my way through it. It's kind of my own therapy and found a few years ago that the closer I got to my own suffering and heartbreak and the more raw I was with that in my music, the more it actually connected with other people. And so as much as I might feel like I'm alone and feeling this way when I'm writing it, as soon as I perform it live, I know I'm not because those songs are the ones that people respond to and come up to me after and say, oh my gosh, this reminds me exactly of this thing that happened. I'm like, that's fantastic. I know it can't possibly be exactly, we can't have shared the exact experience, but that you were able to connect with it in some way means a lot. And that's the kind of thing that keeps me playing after it's been about 15 years now. It just makes me want to keep going when I feel like I shouldn't, because it can be hard to be a professional creative person right now. You know, the economy for artists is undergoing some change and I think ultimately really good change, but we're just in a place where we're navigating how to do that and record labels aren't really a thing anymore and radio play is not even really a thing anymore for most artists and it's an interesting time to be an artist but I definitely wouldn't give it up I really love it you mentioned that that kind of emotional reverberation in people and the phrase I've used before is when you hear something and it rings in you like a bell Mm. like and you just you feel it like just right and it's funny that you mentioned you know the new economy of music and for all that you know Spotify pays poorly but I can tell you this and one thing about an egalitarian marketplace because I remember listening to Spotify once and just having it on random and listening to someone's playlist and having a song come up by a lady named Anna Vogelsang, listening to it on the way to work and it just like cutting to the core of me. I was in a really bad place at the time. You know, I was in a relationship that was ending. I was in a workplace that I hated. And there was a particular song that was all about, oh, you know, as long as you're getting by, as long as you're, you're doing your best. And in the chorus, it says, but what if this is not my best? What if I can do better? And, and her voice breaks at the end of that. And it absolutely shredded me. And I went to look her up and I realized that at the time she's doing much better now. She had fewer Twitter followers than me. And she 
was just this musician who had put her stuff on Spotify. And when I tweeted that I was really enjoying her song, she tweeted back. And I'm just like, wait, what? Like, I was under the impression <laughs> this was this, like, lofty singer-songwriter with this incredibly powerful music that was on the same playlist as Nico Case. And I had traveled from one to the other and did, had not blinked an eye. But th this was, you know, it sounds high-hand to say, this was a person on the other end as opposed to a musician that I would not be able to talk to. Right. I think it's that kind of thing where, you know, for example, someone like Angela from the Double Clicks, whose music I have listened to and cried to, on the basis of one email, can come and be a guest on my show, and from that can link to other people like yourself and who can come and be guests on my show and I can find new music to cry to. So, hey, occasionally it works out just fine. Yeah, I, you know, I love the internet for that reason. Like, I love the accessibility and being able to connect with fans. When I kind of have the energy to do that, I try to do that as much as possible while still sort of protecting my little bubble. Sure, that's very important too. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a hard place to navigate because I think when you're at my level, like you're talking about, like I'm still somebody who's going to respond to tweets and stuff like that. And I want to be able to do that as long as possible. But it's also kind of hard because when you set that expectation, then when you don't do it, fans get mad at you sometimes. <laughs> Oh, no. It's, um, the worst. it's a great trade, though. I mean, the, the connections that I'm able to make. I love to play house concerts. Those are my favorite shows. And it's a similar mm -hmm. thing where, you know, they're like just so psyched that you're in their house doing a show. And I'm like, I'm so excited that I'm at a house and not a terrible club where nobody's listening to me, <laughs> you know. There are cats here. There are comfy chairs. Yeah, exactly. Like the double clicks say, hanging out with cats at parties. Like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. But yeah, I love to like play house concerts and connect with people and be able to have a conversation before or after the show and, and not just like sound check and play a set and get back on the bus. You know, I have those, you know, those shows too, but it all kind of evens out. And I think that's actually a nice place for us to end it. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? And I'm going to give you lots of space here because you have an incredibly successful Kickstarter to talk about. Yeah, Kickstarter. I was so nervous to do the Kickstarter for the new album because it had been since 2009 since I tried to like crowdfund a thing. And we launched it a couple of weeks ago and we funded in under 12 hours. So wow. now we're on to some really exciting stretch goals. And I think the stretch goal we're working toward right now is to get professional mastering done. And that's just to make it more radio ready and get it more polished and have like a more professional sound so that when we send it out to places like Spotify and iTunes and some radio stations that it'll be ready to go and broadcast on more than just people's personal stuff. <laughs> Beyond that, I want to do a cover of the Mountain Goats, another Durham band, the Mountain Goats song this year. I feel like everybody oh, I'm so excited for this. needs to exercise 2017 somehow. And so for me, that's going to be it. And uh, that's like our final main stretch goal. And if we get beyond that, I want to do vinyl. I want to do more videos and try to get a horn section on the album. We got big dreams. So we're going to go as far as we can go with this thing. The Kickstarter campaign is called Juliana Finch Will Not Shut Up. Hell yeah. If you Google that, you can find it. And that was just my response to at the start of the year I had a person who listened to a song that I wrote that was a protest song called Nasty Weather he told me that I should shut up and sing oh. I went and looked at his Twitter page and uh, he was telling a lot of artists this I deleted it because I don't need that but I also reminded him that shutting up and singing are opposites of each other so <laughs> that's why it's called Juliana Finch Will Not Shut Up because I won't and neither should you and if people want to find me online I am at write play repeat like writing on Twitter and Instagram. And if you don't find those things, just use the hashtag bedhead on one of your photos in the morning and I will find you. I, I look at that hashtag pretty regularly. <laughs> so uh, feel free to tag me in your weird bedhead photos in the morning and I will get a huge kick out of it. Well, I certainly will as seen I have a bedhead to reckon with. <laughs> 
But Julianne, this has been fantastic. And I'm certainly going to go and see, I was originally thinking that I was going to go and get in on the Kickstarter and like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. And now I'm just desperate to get in before it closes because this is all so exciting. And I would like more stretch goals involving pug costumes. So feel free to add a bunch more of those. I was thinking maybe we could do a Pavlov calendar where you just do like 12 costumes and do a whole like yearly calendar for him. Themed costumes. I love it. I'm 100% on board for this. All right, Juliana. So thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. Thanks for having me. This was great. very much to Juliana Finch for her time. And I'm happy to announce that as I record this on the 6th of December, Juliana's Kickstarter is at 201% funded. Congratulations, Juliana. You deserve every penny. Now for Juliana's cocktail, she put together a sentence that was music to my ears. And I quote, I love gin and bourbon, not together. My favorite cocktails in general are old-timey, inspired Prohibition-era booze-forward stuff like Sazerac's Old Fashions, Negronis, martinis with a twist, not an olive, preach. And the recent cocktail movement has been fun for me because people are interested in that stuff again and getting away from gross pre-made sour mix. Yet another person with this pre-made sour mix. America, why do you do this? Who hurts you? Sour mix should always be made fresh, heathens. Maybe I need to start a movement and like take sour mix back. But not today. Today we're keeping it simple. And so I present the DeFranco. In a beaker or a large mixing glass with ice, combine two ounces of bourbon, half an ounce of dry vermouth, a quarter ounce of Luxardo Maraschino liqueur, and a quarter ounce of Amaro Montenegro. You could also sub in Amaro Picon if you've got some handy. Stir until combined and strain into a cocktail glass. Garnish with a cherry. A single snowflake is just a drop in the fountain, but avalanches move mountains. Enjoy! summer how about we put up a wall between the houses and the highway and then you can go your way and i can go my way the meth of you is recorded in leichhardt new south wales australia and is written hosted and edited by yours truly lucas brown new episodes are released every wednesday evening and if you'd like to be a guest on the show simply send an email to the at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about just to let you know i have opened up january for new guests you can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month, 
Now, normally, this is the part where I say you can pledge as much as you want, and you can. It doesn't say that on the site, but you can. But really, I'm looking for those $1 backers. I want to see you little guys out there. Patreon backers get early access to episodes if I get them done early, secret cocktail recipes, cursive tweets like Melissa Bright got this week, physical mail, and I would just really, really appreciate it. Some reward tiers come with thanks on the show, so this week I'm thanking Dr. Daniel Bins, former guest of the show. Thanks, Dan, you're really something. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, go to iTunes in the country of your choice, go to Apple Podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review. And if you leave one and let me know that you've written it, I'll even read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist with every song we've ever used going back all the way to episode one, including this one. It's Fuel by Ani DeFranco. I update that playlist every night when the podcast goes live, and there's over 10 hours of music there, so make sure you subscribe and get the new stuff in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to comedian and podcaster Joseph Scrimshaw about, and I'm really excited about this, Twin Peaks. Before we go and before we segue into the fun back matter, with Juliana's permission, we have a track from her upcoming and fully funded album called Nasty Weather. It was written in support of the Women's March, and you might notice I nicked a line for the description of the cocktail. So without further ado, here is Nasty Weather by Juliana Finch. Join me, won't you? You got words for people like me You think it hurts when you call me nasty Well, you can't hurt me just as long as I stand free And I can stand long as my sisters stand with me A storm is coming, something's rolling in You're not a winner just because you win I know you feel it prickle on your skin Enough whispers make a howling wind And we're in for nasty weather We're in for nasty weather We gotta stick together We're in for nasty weather One snowflake is a drop Avalanches move mountains Once we're awake we can't go back to sleep Make every chance a promise that you keep I know we marched but can we walk the wall Behind the earthquake comes the aftershock We're in for nasty weather Avalanches move mountains 
Immigrant and native Let's elevate, let's get legislative It's time the system was rearranged Let's bring about a social climate change Give them some nasty weather Avalanches move mountains. Weeks ago, when I was recording, where I had to like bodily pick up my laptop, my mic, and headphones and everything, and run into another room and like <laughs> perch at the end of one of the shades that we have right next to the modem because the connection was so bad. Perched like with my knees up under my chin and holding my laptop and holding the mic in front of me, and I did the rest of the podcast that way, gorilla style. I'm hoping we don't have to resort to that. I'm currently propped up on a pool table in the basement of a beach house in the outer <laughs> of North Carolina. It's kind of a great image, whereas I'm in my dining room, I'm using my tried and true method of, I just put an Ikea cloth box full of blankets directly behind my microphone. It just absorbs everything, so I get no reflections off the table or the walls or whatever, which nice. is something I learned through trial and error, and it still looks ridiculous, but it works. I'm just using the uh, sweater sweater <laughs> method. I'm also assisted by the fact that there was a thunderstorm yesterday, so we had to rush all of our laundry off the line, so there is also a pile of laundry on this dining table including like <laughs> towels and stuff so we'll be good now you've been in australia for a while right yeah yeah like 14 years wow that's awesome i have some cousins who live out there oh really whereabouts i think they live near brisbane i'm not totally oh, okay. sure i would like an excuse to visit oh yeah totally that's the reason for it i mean we had one of my girlfriend's cousins come and visit he's originally from here but he's been living in austin for i think it's like going on like 10 years or something but because he works in, in like startups and stuff doing finance he essentially lives off his floor drobe for like literally 10 years. Wow. I heard him describe that and like I actually got like uncomfortable chills. I was thinking like how, how can you do that? Like <laughs> I'm the person where like the day I move in, I am already half unpacked by the time the last box comes in. Yeah. I'm very good at establishing a space as my own. So the idea of living like multi, like nearly a decade in a place and not making any stamp on it just bothers me so much. <laughs> Yeah, I get really anxious as much as I travel for working. I get really anxious if my stuff doesn't have a home, if I don't have an actual home base. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, it sounds shallow or materialistic, but a friend of mine actually put it because she's lived in the same house her whole life. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, this was my parents' house and then my parents gave it to me and they moved to a smaller house. So that I've been in some iteration of this house my whole life. And I'm like, well, you know, you think of it like you bring the inside of that house everywhere when you move. Because I moved like 20 times before I was 20. So, wow. so you, know, you bring that poster and that desk and, you know, those things with you. You get revision one, revision two, revision three of your stuff. But that sort of core of it, like my mom, who lives in Winnipeg, has the same, like, things on her walls. Has the same, like, covered wagon lamp that used to be in my <laughs> room when I was two years old. Like, stuff like that. That's, that's all carried with her. 
and like she's right. because she's nearly 60 now but it's like some variation of those things has carried on yeah i don't think there's anything wrong with nesting i mean you know i can respect the minimalist movement you know i don't think our stuff should own us but <laughs> but you know we need to make our little nests absolutely i just completely lost my train of thought but that's okay we can use that as a segue Is this your new laptop, or is it still the old one? It is the new one. The new Ooh, one that's so shiny. not dead anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I've gone through a couple in the last couple of years. Angela, actually, of the Double Clicks, actually mm-hmm. apologized personally because she said it's the curse of Double Clicks records that they kill laptops. Right before the Kickstarter, yeah, the Kickstarter campaigns, she's helped my label mates run. <laughs> They've also had to replace their laptops. <laughs> <laughs> Some bolt out of the blue says, "Well, you won't be needing that anymore." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, maybe I'm gonna level up or something, and all of a sudden I'll be able to communicate without any sort of technology, but my own mind. I had that when I got this laptop. It was one of those things where it's like I knew that I'm like, you know, I've had this other laptop for like six years, and I probably want a nice shiny one that I can do like editing on and stuff instead of my wheezing old computer tower. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll upgrade in the next six months, and hey, maybe I'll even be like super organized and I'll like save up some money and buy it in cash. And then about four months before I could do that, my old one literally cracked in half. Oh my, what? <laughs> Like, it was like a six-year-old Alienware laptop that I had bought on a whim, and it had a glass screen and some complicated hinges and stuff. And I, it had been sitting next to my TV with the HDMI plugged in for, like, I think it was a month straight, because I, I hadn't been bringing it to work or anything. And so it was just sitting there plugged in with the screen half open so I could watch, like, Netflix and stuff. And then I went, at one point, I unplugged the HDMI, and I went to pull the screen back, and I heard a crack, and the bottom quarter of the screen stayed in the same position, and the top quarter bent back, and I could see bare wires and sparks and i oh went my god <laughs> okay so i'm buying a new laptop this weekend oh my gosh that's scary it's not that i didn't consider duct taping it together but i thought you know let's not chance it sure my plan is to primarily use this machine for doing stuff on the road and traveling and like my basic word processing and writing stuff and then i want to build a machine that i can really do some editing and do some production i'm really impatient about like music production i have zero interest in doing my own production (laughs) but i want to learn how to do like video editing and stuff like that so i want to build a desktop for that and then just use this one for on the go stuff oh i did want to warn you that you would think that a beach house in the middle of nowhere would be very peaceful but they are (laughs) doing construction on the house next door to us oh no so i'm hoping that it's nearing the end of the workday here and i'm hoping Mm. that they'll be wrapping it up but if you're hearing any of it on your side and we need to pause for a couple minutes uh that's fine just letting you know that might happen that's fine so i have had that situation happen before where the house next door to me they were ripping all the ceramic tiles off the roof and dropping them from one story up <laughs> into a metal dumpster on the ground which sounded like gunshots going off and then once they stopped finishing that they then cut into the corrugated iron roof with like a saw like a, a circular saw into galvanized iron I feel like live from Thunderdome. Yeah, it's like, it's pretty awful. All right, so you're in a beach house, huh? Yeah. So is this your beach house or is this it a is friend's not, beach It is not. It's a rental house. <laughs> Living the life of the uh, fast-talking, gum-snapping Hollywood musician. Yeah, I could not really, <laughs> I can't really convince people to, to give me money if I'm like, hello, I'm in my beach house. Every few years, some close friends of mine and I have Friendsgiving instead of Thanksgiving. because we uh, We're recording this on American Thanksgiving weekend. So this is one of those years. So we rented this house with several friends. There are seven of us here this weekend. 
and it's lovely in the Outer Banks, which is right up on the crashing Atlantic. We can see the ocean from the window upstairs, and it's very nice, oh. except for the construction next door. I'm actually looking up where this is because I want to know. Barrier Islands off the coast of what? North Carolina. Oh, North Carolina. Okay, there we go. Because the map zoomed in so far, it looked like almost something it looks like in the we're Caribbean. in the ocean, right? And I'm just like, holy shit, what the... <laughs> Yeah, when you look on Google Maps, because the Outer Banks is not very wide, the island itself is just very long and not very wide, yeah. the, the main island. We're near Nags Head, and when you're looking on Google Maps and driving, it just looks like you're driving in the water. <laughs> Google's like, where are you? You're in the ocean. I got nothing, man. We had that happen. There's a wine region north of Sydney called the Hunter Valley, and they've done a lot of rebuilding of the roads out there, because there's been some, you know, there's like 50 years of broken roads and potholes and stuff through farm country. Mm-hmm. And they're like, look, we're going to put in a proper road that you can get past it if you want, but it's, it's fine. But that didn't update on any of the GPS stuff. So it's like you're watching yourself on the GPS map, and you'll go from, okay, I'm following directions, to I am sailing over green pastures, and no one knows where I am. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love the idea of giving a GPS a character. My girlfriend calls her GPS Brittany, and so she's like, Brittany has no idea. Brittany's like, where the hell are you? I don't even know. Because you have to yell at it, because it'll do the wrong thing. It's like, with Kimiko, it'll be like, you're trying to put me onto the toll road, Brittany. That's not where I want to go. And it's like, you know, at the roundabout, turn completely around and go back the way you came. No, Brittany, that's stupid. That's not what I'm doing. Root recalculation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I do that with my internal editor. You know, when you sit down to write or do any, (laughs) create anything, you have that voice in your head that's like, this is dumb. It's been done before. You're stupid. Go live in a cave. Like, nobody wants to hear your voice. And I had to give mine a name. His name is Steve. Uh, God damn it, Steve. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just really fun to be like, damn it, Steve. Shut up, Steve. I think it's funny the names that people come up with to be across like at least five different podcasts, none of which are related to each other. They have decided that the name for an annoying superfluous guy in any TV show or relationship is Greg. <laughs> like, oh, this fucking Greg, man. He just turns up. And that, it originally came out of, there's a, a Sailor Moon podcast that I listen to where they talk about how Sailor Mercury had an extraneous boyfriend for one episode covering the fact that Ami is clearly queer. Right. He just turned up for one episode and she kind of didn't really care about him and then he went away. And so then it became, oh, this fucking Greg turns up. <laughs> and then he dies and he goes away and that carried over into Xena Warrior Princess. He was just her beard. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, oh, you're going to turn up. We're going to have no chemistry. They're going to tease a relationship. Then you're going to go the fuck away (laughs) because she's going to have a quiet conversation with you. And then you're going to go, oh, right. I really should. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to (laughs) leave. And then it went over to the McElroy series of shows where it's like, oh, God, what are you doing, Greg? Why are you even trying to do this, Greg? Greg. And then you feel for anyone whose name is actually Greg, who's yeah. like listening to the show, and he's like, listen, Greg, this is a dumb idea, and I know you know this is a dumb idea. And he's just sitting there like on the train being like, what? 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 <laughs> I, I just got here. What? Do I don't know anything about this. Yeah, my biological father, I'm adopted. My biological father is actually named Steve, and I had to apologize to him. I didn't meet him until I was an adult, and I was oh, like, no. listen, I already <laughs> write blog posts where I yell at you a lot. I was like, it's not you. <laughs> It's that Steve. It's the other Steve. It's like how every stepdad in your head is named Ron. I'm not listening to you, Ron. You're not my real dad. I sent you a message from the dog. It's a table to the dog's collar. It says, fuck you, Ron. So, shall we get started then? Yeah. Now that we're into yelling at imaginary stepdads. All Greg's, Ron's, and Steve's. And the occasional Brittany. <laughs> and Brittany. <laughs> 